Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. We were planning a typical rest day recap today, but scheduling has been interrupted and, uh, well, to be honest, rather consciously binned um, so that we can pour our hearts out on uh, Mark Cavendish. Uh, joining me, as ever, is my co-host Tom. Tom, what do you say? Uh, quick roundup and then some unadulterated back and forth on uh, on the Manx missile. Yeah, good day, everyone. It's been a great week uh, in the cycling world, at least anyway. And uh, yeah, no point talking about the other 150 boring cyclists in the Tour de France. Let's just get on to Cav. Right. We should, for the sake of, you know, being kind to these riders who have given their everything in one stages this week, name check them very quickly. So stage 10 was Cav. We'll get on to him in a second. Stage 11 was Wout van Aert. Um, who I would like to speak about for two minutes first. Um, 12, Nils Pollitt, well done. 13, Cav again. 14, Balcomolima, again, well done. And 15, Sepkus, congratulations. Right, let's track back Wout van Aert. We witnessed a bit of Wout van Aert history on Mont Ventoux. You've been sitting on that all week, haven't you? (laughs) Um, Unbelievable, a guy who's came fourth in a TT, second in a sprint, and then won a mountain stage. Is he perhaps the best all-round cyclist we have seen in the last couple of decades? Uh, I'd have to say, yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything he can't do. We've obviously watched him uh, perform very well in the cyclocross over the winter. Uh, He's come and won. He's capable of winning one-day classics. And, I, and then he turns up at a Grand Tour and finishes second to the greatest sprinter the sport's ever seen one day and then wins a high mountain stage the next day. It's just an unbelievable uh, ability and versatility that he has available to him. I think what that win is going to do is going to change narratives on the build, the, the build and the physique of a climber because there's long been this idea that a climber is this tiny, tiny, you know, like man in a child's body or a woman in a child's body who <laughs> climbs up this mountain and weighs 30 kilograms. Now, Wout van Aert weighs 80 plus kilograms, which in terms of the general population is a very healthy weight for him. Uh, in terms of cycling, that puts him as, technically speaking, a big boy. Um, he got his appendix out a few weeks before the tour, um, which obviously shaved off a few grams or 100 grams. I have no idea how much an appendix weighs. Um, he won that stage ahead of Kenny Ellisonde. Now, I saw on Twitter, which is the reliable source of all information regarding cyclists' weight, um, that Kenny Ellisonde, Kenny Ellisonde uh, weighs 26 kilograms less than Wout van Aert. That's crazy. I didn't know. I know, I know Kenny Ellisonde's a, you know, quite a, a light guy, but uh, that difference is... I, don't, I mean, how much heavier than Wout van Aert? I'm going to spring this on you and you're not going to know the answer, but I want to know how heavy Filippo Ganna is compared to... So I think Ganna is probably five or six kilograms heavier than Wout van Aert. Yeah. But to put, to put these numbers into perspective for people, a bidon, a full water bottle, right? 500 milliliter water bottle. Fortunately, milliliters and grams, you know, equate the exact same. So a 500 of, milliliter of water. of water, yes, not yes. lead or anything. Uh, 500 milliliter, a 500 milliliter water bottle is the equivalent of 500 grams. So two of those is one kilogram. 
So I've run the numbers for you, uh, for you, Tom, and anyone listening to this. So you don't have to do the maths here. This is just a chill out zone. Um, Wout van Aert weighs the equivalent of Kenny Ellis. His name's tough, isn't it? Wout van Aert weighs the equivalent of Kenny Ellisond with 52 full bead-ons strapped to him. Yeah, it's obviously not as simple as that because that's 52 bead-ons worth of muscle pushing the pedals, basically. So some of it does help. Uh, And there is that argument to be made that, you know, can you get up the mountains with raw power, which seems to be what people like the time trial specialists these days seem to be capable of all of a sudden. It used to just be the accepted knowledge that if you're heavy, you're at a disadvantage. But now I don't know with all the science that's going on behind it, you know, where they're holding this weight. If it is all just in there as just raw power available, then they are capable of just grinding up these climbs at a stupid pace with the with the more conventional climbers. There you go. And if our main protagonist of this episode doesn't win on the Champs-Élysées, what I would like to see is Wout van Aert win it in the polka dots, which I am reliably informed has never happened. Um, no. So we've got that to look forward to, failing the dream scenario. Which would, of course, be a fifth win for Cap on the Champs-Élysées. Exactly. Um, before we move on to Cav as well, I want to speak about uh, the Giro Donna. The Giro Donne. Uh, we should use an Italian accent now that they are European champions, of course. Donne, because um, it's plural. But yeah, well, don't worry, go on, carry on. Wait, what would it be? Giro Donne? Yeah, it's with an E on the end. That was D-O-N-N-E is plural of Donna, which is one woman, many women. Okay, thank you, Tom. Um, You're welcome. One woman who dominated that race was Anna van der Bregen. Um, well, SD Works, actually. The Donne, Donne of SD Works. Um, clean sweep of the podium. First, second, third. Uh, van der um, Bregen, Mormon Passio, Vollering. Um, and also, I guess we need to give our hats off to Mariana Voss, who Cav implicitly referred to in one of his post-race interviews, uh, who won two stages at this stage race, to take up to 30 overall there. Um and yeah, fantastic, fantastic Palmares she has. Yeah, it's um, it's mad what SD Works have been able to do in women's cycling in the last 12 months or so because they seem to turn up and dominate just about every race unless you get someone like Mariana Voss who's capable of winning it as an individual. As a team, they've got so many strong riders and tactically they almost never seem to get it wrong. Well, DSM have also, you know, taken a few stages at this Giro. Um so, you know, I guess they've got a bit of competition there and especially with Van der Bregen retiring at the end of the season, although her place seems to be kind of laid out ready for Vollering to just take over and continue the domination. Yeah, they've just, the transition's been quite seamless from Van der Bregen to Vollering when it's needed to be. Easy peasy. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Cav. <laughs> Here we go. Right. Tom, I'm going to say a date to you. Uh-huh. And you're going to tell me the significance of that date. The 11th of October, 2020. Uh, oh, right. I don't actually know the significance of the date, but my guess would be, was that when we saw that interview from Cav, where he was in tears saying he's just ridden the last race of his career. Spot on. Yeah. Uh, 11th of October, 2020 is when Ghent Wevelgem took place. Uh, Mark Cavendish spent the day in the break uh, riding for Byron McLaren, gave an interview after the race in tears, saying that's perhaps the last race of my career. 
he went on then to sign with the Koenig Quickstep in what I think everybody thought was, and what perhaps was when he did sign for them, just a kind of fortified sponsorship deal. He brought on the watch sponsor. They pumped some money into the team. Lefebvre's got a big smile on his face. Cav gets a nice team kit, but becomes part of the furniture of the team. April, Tom, what happens? Tour of Turkey. The Tour of Turkey. Mark Cavendish takes four stages. Three of them were back-to-back to back. Um, June, what happens? Uh, June, June, June. He's uh, selected for the tour. Before he selected for the tour, what did he win? He won Cav, 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 Cav. Uh, did he, was it up down in Spain? Did he win something? He won stage five of the Tour of Belgium. The Tour of Belgium, okay. Against a reasonably star-studded lineup. You know, we had Dylan Groenewegen there. We had other very good sprinters there. Showed that he can still do it. After that, he selected for the tour, and the rest is history. Yeah, it's crazy. Obviously, we know he's here because of the injury to Sam Bennett. Um, but it's—I said this last week—it's looking very ominous because it looks like Cav. It looks like him back in his prime six years ago. Well, what I want to say on the Bennett thing is, I've run the numbers, Tom, as I usually do on this podcast. Bennett last year it was seen as this dominant performance from a sprinter. And it was like, right, he is, you know, top of the sport at the moment. He won two stages and the green jersey. Cavs won twice that already and he's got another week to go. I know. And I think, I'm sure the most Cavs won in a single edition is six, which was, there was a year, I think in his first four years, he won four, six, five, four. I've made that up completely. There was one year where he won five. There was one year where he won six and then he won, you know, three or four and a few other editions. And, I've never seen any ride, not you know, not just a sprinter, but uh, GC guys, climbers, whatever. There's no one who is capable of turning up, winning it all, and we'll, we'll get onto the record that he uh, equaled as well. Um, but there's no one who's been able to turn up and just dominate stages on the road like that. You know, when you exclude the time trials, no one even gets close to him. I have experience of watching Cav. I saw his 30th stage win uh, into, well, outside the Bird Park in Villars-les-Dombes. Uh, the Bird Park I did a bit of research on has a quarter of a million visitors every year, um, which is fascinating. That day, the most significant visitor passing outside the Bird Park was Mark Cavendish. Um, that's with that iconic photo of him, Dimension Data Kit on, you know, the big four fingers in front of his face reminding us that he'd won three prior stages to that. Ever since then, that was in 2016. I have told a lot of people, well, bragged to a lot of people, that I was there when Mark Cavendish won his final Tour de France stage. And now I'm having to eat all my words and I'm gladly, gladly lapping them up. You're going to have to get yourself to Paris in a week. I know. Yeah, well, that could be his last one, actually. Um, I think we also need to be aware that we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves because he's got a tough few days in the Pyrenees coming up. And if the last few stages have been anything to go by, the mountains are proving to be difficult for him as much as his you know team can just lasso him up them. Um, lasso? That's not the word, is it? That's when you kind of get someone around the neck and pull them to the floor. That'd be the opposite. What's the opposite of lassoing? Kind of like towing? Slingshot, like in the Madison or something. Yeah, like that in a yeah. way. Um, yeah. Should we have a look at 
his win on stage 13 into Carcassonne, which Absolutely. was, in my opinion, perhaps one of his best, if not his best, on the tour. I have been to Carcassonne. It's a lovely, it's a lovely city, but it's one of the most uncomfortable days of my life. Why was that? I, I, it was really hot and I was wearing a really uncomfortable pair of shoes and they, it tore my feet apart. So uh, it was very painful to walk around the old town of Carcassonne, but I have been. It's very nice. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. glad, you know, your shoes didn't blight your uh, enjoyment of the day. Um, Michael Morku, let's have a word on him. Well, this is it. He um, <clears throat> obviously don't want to take anything away from Cav, but in his career... And it is, he's always the first man to thank his teammates, but he used to think that Mark, Mark Renshaw was the best lead-out man in the business when he was towing Cav to the line uh, on every stage and putting him in perfect position. But the way Michael Morcou seems to do it for Bennett last year and for Cav this year is just absolute perfection. You couldn't ask for anything better as a sprinter. He just delivers you in on the front 200 metres to go every time. It doesn't matter what the other teams around him do because they really have tried to unsettle this uh, De Koenig quick step lead out train. And even when they do get <clears throat> get in the middle of it and, you know, uh, get in their way, Murku and Cav are still there at the front with 200 to go. Well, that whole stage was just 200 kilometres of tactical geniosity. Um, when you look at the stage before, the stage before that Pollitt won, where I think De Koenig maybe realised a bit late that Sagan not starting that stage would play against them because it meant that they wouldn't have Bora because Bora, one of these big teams that does pull on the front and chase down the breakaway with them for Sagan, but Sagan's not there. So they're sending people in the break and that's one less team to control it. The next day, Dukonik come out and say, right, that's it. We're putting our foot down. We're going to block the road. Whether you like that or not, it's quite efficient and they're very efficient at it. Um, They didn't let the break get too far up the road. When it came to the end, it wasn't just a classic you know, Morku plowing at the front and then Cav jump on him at the end. It was Ballerini on a decoy, forced Movistar to move, forced DSM to move when they were too busy. You know, they were thinking about Morku and Cav. Suddenly Ballerini's off for the stage. Morku times it to perfection and delivers Cav on the line. Well, they got it so right that Morku himself finished second. So, uh, and DSM, who looked to have been riding for Case Bolt, finished, <clears throat> I don't know what's gone on there. There's, the rumours you're hearing coming out of the DSM camp are uh, that no one's very happy with the last two weeks there, but Case Ball finished outside the top 10 when at 500 metres to go, his team was on the front. So, yeah, it's just a, another perfect delivery from first Ballerini, as you said, then Murku and Cav finishes it off. It's funny because we're getting to the stage now where Cav's biggest competition on the Champs-Élysées could be Michael Murku himself. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously that's not going to happen. Especially if the, um, I don't know what's going to happen in the next uh, three or four days, but the green jersey could come under threat because Michael Matthews can get himself over the hills a lot better than Cav can and get the intermediate points. As well as, uh, is Cobrelli still in the race? And He is, else? he's going yeah. well. Yeah, um, so there's a few guys there who uh, should claw back quite a bit in the running for the green jersey. Uh, and obviously, if that is still in play when they get to Paris, then they're not going to risk Cav not getting enough points, assuming Cav's still there. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing. So something I want to say about Mark Cavendish is I know there's a lot of people that are very new to the Tour de France. And I mean, anyone that's started following cycling in the last 
three, four years will not have seen Mark Cavendish at his best and will just know him as this kind of folkloric figure. Now, looking at his stats, you would be forgiven for thinking that he has had it very easy at the Tour de France and that any sprint that's happened, he's won it. He's had a lot of hard luck at the Tour. 2014, he crashed out on the first stage, which was when um, it was in Harrogate in Yorkshire. 2017, again, was a very forgettable tour for him. He crashed out with Sagan on stage four, broke his shoulder blade on that one. Um, If you haven't already listened to it, we did an excellent episode with our friend French Thomas, who was a doping control officer at the Tour de France and actually had the privilege of taking Mark Cavendish to the doping control on that stage after he just, you know, he'd he'd realised, he he crashed out and realised he wasn't going to be starting the next day. And Tom, I had to go onto the bus, ask for Mark Cavendish and explain to all his teammates that he was taking the lad that's just broken his uh, shoulder blade to uh, take a sample of his, uh, you know, how doping control works. You know, it's it's not been easy for him and he takes every opportunity that he can, or at least tries to take every opportunity that he can. Yeah. And obviously he's lost the last couple of years with this uh, virus that wasn't initially wasn't diagnosed and then has obviously not been really cured it's it's not something that ever goes away and it you really does um just sort of prick the imagina- imagination to think what could have been if he'd been fit and healthy and not missed you know he's he's missed out essentially on three or four entire tours de france um which for someone like mark cavendish as we're now seeing that's that's 10 or 12 stages that he he could have potentially added to his palmares um Tom, I'm going to put one question to you and one question only. The last time Mark Cavendish won five stages was in 2011. That year, he also won in Chateau Roux and his fifth stage was on the Champs-Élysées. Is history repeating itself a decade on? Did he win the green jersey? He won the green jersey that year as well, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah, so that's it. It's written in the stars. There you go. Um, Cattle Evans is going to win the tour. Um, let's well look I mean throughout this whole tour Cavanish has said in his post-race interviews let's not talk about the record let's not talk about the record Tom I don't think Mark Cavanish listens to this podcast as much as we would like him to <laughs> let's talk about the record let's compare him to Eddie Merckx um, it's a difficult one and I think if you're you know if you come from a footballing background and you don't really know the Merckx Cavanish thing it's a bit like trying to compare Diego Maradona and Cristiano Ronaldo I mean, they're, you know, operating in completely different epochs of the sport. And one of them has convicted doping offences. Let's talk about (laughs) Merckx first, Um, both on 34 stage wins. Mark Cavanish's for me, are more impressive. Better, yep. (laughs) This comes down to the sense that, so everyone will say, look, Eddie Merckx has been, and I should put a disclaimer here that I don't mean to take any respect of Eddie Merckx's name. I completely agree that he is a very important figure in cycling as the Beatles are to music in forming, you know, how you attack and how you race and inspiring people. That doesn't mean the the Beatles are the best musicians. It just means they're very important in the formation of, you know, that industry. Um, Eddie Merckx was more of an all-rounder. He, um, you know, could win on mountains. He could win on time trials. He dominated time trialing. 16 of his 34 stage wins came in time trials. Um, but just for me, his 
wins will always have an asterisk by them. The asterisks are not... I've, it's hard to say because, uh, let's be honest, everyone cycling in, in that time was probably doing the same stuff. Um, but for me, it just makes a big difference that Cav has did all of his... The, the fact that they were mass start stages, not time trials where it's one one by one. Um, Cav's beaten the field every time. But it also and means I, and, that... I, and, I, and I don't like watching time trials. They're, they're my least favourite days of the tour. They're a bit boring. Bunch of sprints are great. You need to be careful, mate. You, you'll forget the name of this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. But... Have, have every tour will have five to six sprint opportunities that you can take. Mercs could have hypothetically won on any of those stages, which is, I mean, again, great. But it means that, you know, Cav is perhaps more clinical in his field. I mean, the easiest way to conclude this is to say that Eddie Merckx is the greatest cyclist of all time and Mark Cavendish is the greatest sprinter of all time. Yeah, well, Merckx himself has got quite wound up by it, hasn't he? It's like when, um, like when you try and tell Pele that someone scored more goals than him. He's always got, you know, a couple that he scored in his back garden when he was eight years old to add to the tally. And Merckx seems to have a similar attitude. He really cares about people's perception of him. And he came straight out and said, not only did I win these stages, but I also won five yellow jerseys and whatever else and whatever else. And we're just like, like yeah, you did. Well done. No one's trying to take that away from you. We're just like Cav. And we're very pleased that he's equal one of your records. So I was doing some research before we jumped on this uh, this call, Tom. Eddie Merckx was convicted of doping three times. 1969, 1973 and 1977. Now, in those days, when you doped, nowadays, if you dope, it's a minimum two-year ban, probably a lifetime ban from the sport. You know, not allowed to go to any of the races, not even allowed to pick up a bike, not allowed to look at a bike. Yeah. In those days, it was a one-month ban and a slap around the wrist and a small fine. So in 1969, Eddie Merckx was kicked off the Giro for testing positive for amphetamines. Um, the Giro that year took place at the end of May into June. Three and a half weeks later, so he had this, he was given a one month ban. Three and a half weeks later, the ban was lifted and he took the start line in the Tour de France that year, which he went on to win. He won the yellow jersey, the green jersey, the polka dot jersey, and seven stages, including a team time trial, all a month after being kicked off the Giro d'Italia for doping. Again, I'm not saying that that makes those wins any it's less very valuable. Very suspect. It doesn't make those wins any less valuable, <clears throat> but it means that, you know, if that were nowadays, he wouldn't have had that opportunity. No, and look, even, even if you get clean later on, the, the way you've been able to train and the way you've been able to build up muscle when you've been doping at a young age still gives you an advantage, even if you're no longer doing it. So, so like, it goes again, I'm torn drawn towards athletics because you look at Justin Gatlin winning 100 meters gold medals at the world championships and things like that 10 years after he was convicted a second time of doping and it just does still make a difference you're able to put your body through more because you did it previously under the influence of whatever it was that was in your system yeah and I, I am quite sorry that we brought this on to doping because <laughs> it's a topic we try to avoid yeah it's a topic we try to avoid and it's a bit boring and but I understand because I mean there's a lot of talking of doping in the sport at the moment around Taddy Pogacar and it comes from a generation of cycling fans that is you know distrustful of outstanding performances because you know they've lived through the Armstrong era and, and, and you have to you have to be I've, I've said that it's going to take 
ages, uh, you know, generations for the sport to recover from what did go on and what is still not, you know, okay, cycling has cleaned up its act and in relation to other sports, it's a lot better now. But, you know, there's still riders who aren't clean and people do get caught still too regularly. Yeah. Unfortunately for them, they can't all have a second rebirth like uh, like Mark Cavendish. No, um, a second rebirth. Yeah, does that phrase make sense? Would you just say a second birth or a rebirth? Oh, yeah, but you could um, you could say Renaissance to sound posh. Ah, now we're back on the topic <laughs> of the Tour de France. Look, he's got. Let's go back to Cav. He's got a couple of chances left. I think it's stage nineteen. Is the other one for the sprinters? Yeah, it seems a long way away at the moment. We're on the second rest day now. Um, he's got a fight over the Pyrenees. Get there in a fit enough state. I mean, we saw his interview at the end of the last stage that he won. Oh, he, he was, was in gone. He was gone. Absolute bits. I was surprised he had a pedal stroke in him to get over the line at the end. But yeah, we'll see. We will see. Tom, do you think he's going to do it? I think he's going to do it. I, do, I mean, that the stage yesterday into Andorra, he made the time cut with seven minutes to spare or something. It was a very, as comfortable a day as it's possible to have when you're a sprinter in the high mountains. And uh, he does... He just looks like he's getting better and better as the tour goes on, which is something he's always done. Um, you would see maybe earlier in his career, there'd be other sprinters who would come to the tour and maybe nick a stage early on. And then once they got into the mountains, Cav just seems to recover better. I don't know, handle the altitude better. And when they come back down from the mountains to the flat stages in the late last week of the tour, no one can get near him. There you go. Well, hopefully it'll be the same this time around. We didn't mean for this episode to sound like a sort of eulogy to Mark Cavendish. Um, but I think ever since we started this, we've wanted to do an episode like this. And Mark Cavendish has given us the license to do that this time around. And if he wins in Paris next Sunday, then next week's episode is going to be me talking you through every single one of his Tour de France stage wins ever. We've got that to look forward to. In, in order of which one I liked the most. <laughs> that sounds so buzzfeedy. Oh, I'll, I'll do the. I'll write the article for BuzzFeed ranking Mark Cavendish's Tour de France stage wins. Um, until then, Tom, we will catch up after the tour has finished. We will. Uh, in the meantime, you can obviously find us on social media at TTPDCST, which is TT Podcast, all the vowels taken out, where mostly the other Tom, but occasionally me, might be tweeting. Wonderful. Um, we'll catch up with you all soon thank you very much for listening and uh, take care thanks everyone